Beloved, it has been said that a sermon without an introduction is like a house without an entryway. The idea is if you're going to build a house, you'll have some kind of walkway leading up, some kind of porch perhaps, doorway. You want it to be inviting. You want an address on the front. You want people to know where they are going. And that's the idea behind an introduction into a sermon. Uh, There could be situations on the other side of the spectrum where maybe there's a desire that you don't want anything up front to distract from what's on the inside. I remember when my beloved Margie and my children and I were in Berlin in 2008. We were blessed to go to the Holocaust Museum. Very powerful, very impactful. Uh, What impacted me the most was this one room they had. It was basically in a kind of disjoint corner of the building, and it was four stories high, and when you went in, it was completely dark inside, and they had stones in the faces of shapes that when you walked on the stones, it would make a screaming-like sound as a reminder of the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, It was completely dark except for one little light up at the top, which just demonstrated that there was or was to show that there is always a measure of hope and I remember going into that room it was very uh, austere there wasn't any it was just basically one little door so there are different ways in which you can emphasize what is coming next now what I'm going to do today is more on the first side so before we begin even as Gary said this new teaching series which for us isn't a long topical series it's a new book it's the book of Hebrews please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And before we begin our expositional journey uh, next week in chapter 1, verse 1 and 4, what I'm going to do today is an introduction summary, kind of an introduction and an entryway so that when we begin that expositional journey, we will know where we're going and have some kind of framework around it. Um, Also understand this morning, this will have a little more of a flavor of kind of a classroom lesson rather than a sermon because of that. Now, When we think of the book of Hebrews, for example, in my New American Standard, the superscription at the top says the the epistle to the Hebrews. That is, of course, something that was added after the original writing from God. But when we think of the epistles, when we think of the letters, people normally break them up into two categories. There are the Pauline epistles, the letters that were written by the Apostle Paul, and then there are the general epistles that were written by other people. And it's interesting because the book of Hebrews is very unique. There are many characteristics of it that set it apart from any other book in the New Testament, including the other epistles. Uh, For example, the Pauline epistles are named by the recipient community church or person. So Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Colossians, or Titus, Timothy, uh, Philemon. The general epistles are named, normally named by the author, James, Peter, John, Jude. But the book of Hebrews is kind of a hinge letter. It's not named in either way. It is very unique, and that's one way in which it is unique. And what we'll do this morning, this will be a little more of an abbreviated time here, but we're going to address Five questions, again, to set kind of a framework for where we are going. We will address the question of who, where, and when, and how, and why. And before we do that, open your Bibles, or you're in Hebrews, I trust. Go to chapter 8. I'm going to read the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 8 to set the stage for us. Hebrews 8 and verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. 
We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he's about to erect the tabernacle. For, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Beloved, the intent for this morning and really the intent for the next you know, few weeks, months, maybe a little longer, we'll see in Hebrews is that God would be pleased to use our study of Hebrews to deepen our understanding and appreciation and increase our faith in our Savior who offered one sacrifice for our sins, who is able to save forever, and who lives right here, right now, making intercession for you and for me. Beloved, may we see Jesus in ways grander and more majestic than ever before as a result of this study. And that we, understanding that our new life, that our eternal life, our taste of heaven began at our conversion, that we may enter into the rest that remains, the eternal Sabbath rest which awaits us in heaven forever and ever, which in Christ we enjoy here and now. And like the simple primitive Methodist lay preacher that pointed his finger at Charles Spurgeon, young Charles Spurgeon on that snowy Christmas season day when Spurgeon was up to that point unconverted, and that hackney preacher Spurgeon said that as he pointed at him and said, young man Spurgeon, I can see that you are miserable and you will remain miserable the rest of your life unless, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. May that be the heartbeat and the banner, beloved, over our study in Hebrews. So let's have first a quick look at the who. Who wrote this letter and to whom did he write? These first few questions I'm going to try to address briefly to get to the main ones which we want to look at, the how and the why. But we want to ask the question, who is the author? Do we know who the author is? And in history, there have been, and in studies, there have been many different uh, suggestions and options. You might even have a Bible translation that might say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. So Paul has been a suggestion. Barnabas and Apollos have been other suggestions. Silas, Philip, uh, Clement of Rome, Luke, Jude have all been suggestions. And we can ask the question, well, what do we know? And, and why are people speculating? Because... The normal pattern for a New Testament epistle for a letter at that time was 
in contrast to what we do, we write a letter today, and at the end we say sincerely or love Clay or, or Lisa or whomever. We identify the author at the end. In those times, the author would be identified at the beginning. That's why if you look at Paul's letter, the first word will be Paul. Or if you look at the first word in James, it's James, Peter, Jude, and the list goes on. But here, there's no introductory greeting. There's no identification of the author. And that's why some of these questions, we're addressing these questions, not necessarily answering all the questions, because we don't know for sure who the author is. Now, when the author's name appears in the Holy Writ, in the text, like Paul, James, John, Jude, and Peter, that is the Word of God, that is binding. But in this case, it's speculation. Now, in his early works, for example, Augustine, the early church father uh, cited Paul as the author. But then in his later writings, Augustine said it was anonymous. Uh, Calvin thought it could have been Luke or Clement of Rome. Martin Luther suggested Apollos. But the bottom line is we don't know. Origen, another church father, he captured it well when he said, the thoughts of this book are the apostles, meaning Paul's thoughts. But the style and composition are the work of someone else. And then he has an often quoted statement, God knows the truth of the matter. So we don't know for sure who the author is, but we do know with certainty from the text certain things about the author. Clearly, the man that wrote this has a deep, rich, thorough understanding of the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, of the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, secondly, Clearly, what he writes here does emerge out of the Pauline ministry. It is the thoughts and the theology that align with Paul, even though Paul didn't write this. Uh, and also, one thing that tells us for sure in chapter 13, verse 23, at the end. So, this book doesn't have not just the title of the author, but it doesn't even have any kind of normal letter greeting. Basically, the author just immediately dives into the deep end of the theological pool. But at the end, in the closing, there is a normal epistolary, normal letter kind of closing at the end. And in chapter 13, verse 23, the author tells his audience, take notice that Brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. So we know that the author is steeped in knowledge and understanding of the old covenant priesthood, and we know that he also comes out of the Pauline circle with Timothy, and even again with the thoughts and theology. But here's a key point is that he is a second generation believer. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. The author there says, How shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, and then watch this, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So, beloved, what the author is doing there is he's drawing, he's making a distinction between those who receive the direct, direct revelation of God, like Paul, like James, like Peter, and his audience and himself. Paul would never make that distinction. So, one thing we can say for sure about the identity of the author is it was not Paul. Also, even as Origen kind of hinted towards in his statement, there's very non-Pauline linguistic style and structure here in the letter. 
Um, Barnabas, Barnabas was a Levite, according to Acts. He was a Levite of Cyprian birth. He was born in Cyprus, so he would understand Greek well. Apollos, one commentator said, if some famous unknown didn't write Hebrews, Apollos is as good as fit as any. Bottom line is we don't know for sure, but we do know one thing additional is that this author was a brilliant man. He had a very well-ordered mind. It's very likely that the author of Hebrews was trained in some kind of gymnasium or private rhetorical school because he was a master of elegant Greek. The book of Hebrews is the finest Greek and the finest rhetorical Greek in all of the New Testament. It's rich in vocabulary and sentence building and cultured diction. Uh, Paul was no slouch, but he didn't have anything at this measure as well. That's another distinction between the style, the structure, the vocabulary from Paul and this author. Uh, Homer Kent, one of the commentators, said, The grandeur of the style of this letter, as well as the message, has made it one of the most sparkling gems of the New Testament canon. So we know that he had a rich Levitical priest background. Ground. He was connected with Paul. We know that he was a second-generation believer. He had a very well-ordered mind. And one thing that strikes me even more in my heart was this author had a deep pastoral care and concern for the spiritual well-being of his audience, for the shalom, for the welfare, the spiritual welfare of the people to who he was writing. And beloved, one thing I would say is we know what we need to know, and we don't know what we don't need to know, and the Holy Spirit gives us exactly what we need to know. In the same way that the Holy Spirit provides for the believers in Ukraine or Russia or Albania or Gilbert, Arizona, whether it's sustenance, job, income, he gives us exactly what we need at that moment in time. So also, even more importantly, he gives us just what we need and not more than what we need, even in terms of identifying who the author is. But what about the audience? Who's the audience? Pause for a moment. Beloved, your Christian faith, my Christian faith, our Christian faith has a rich ethnic heritage, a rich ethnic ancestry, and that is a Jewish Hebrew ancestry and heritage. Beloved, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is impregnated with the Old Testament far more than any other book in the New Testament. The Old Testament is the bone and marrow of the book of Hebrews. The Old Testament is quoted more in this book than in any other New Testament book. Uh, Some 36 times there are direct quotations from the Old Testament. 25 passages are quoted once. Three passages are quoted twice. And one passage is quoted three times. Also, this book has the longest Old Testament quotation than any other book in the Bible as well, or in the New Testament, I should say. In Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12, is a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, about the new covenant. And besides all the direct quotations, within this book, there are allusion after allusion after allusion, Uh, even beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So there is an allusion back to the Old Testament, back to the Old Covenant. And by the way, when the word testament comes from the same word covenant. So when we say 
the Old Testament and the New Testament, that is really saying the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which is right at the very center of what this author brings out for us. Uh, One other dimension we'll bring in here is one other fascinating distinguishing characteristics of Hebrews, unlike any other book in the New Testament, is there's no reference to the Gentiles in the book of Hebrews. So, What we do know from all of this, we don't know the location. So we don't know if it's Rome, Corinth, Thessalonica. That's not directly here. But the one thing we do know with absolute certainty based on the content is this is a group of second generation Jewish believers, Hebrew believers. Hence the superscription which was added very early on to the Hebrews, to the Hebrews. And beloved, The style and content are, even the style and content are aimed more towards the eclectic Eastern mentality rather than the matter-of-fact Western mentality. More towards the Oriental way of thinking rather than the Occidental way of thinking. More to the kind of circular reasoning of the Oriental Eastern mind than the linear reasoning of the Occidental Western mind. And... Clearly, the writer knows the audience personally. He has care and compassion for him. Now, for example, uh, the Apostle Paul had never visited the church in Colossae when he wrote the Colossian letter, but clearly he had deep concern and care for them. So that is something here. We see that concern and care, but also it's very clear that he knows them even by virtue of his reference to Timothy in chapter 13. And it is very striking also that he doesn't refer to this group of people as a church. He does refer to them as the house of God, but not as a church. So clearly the author has a particular community in mind. Also, in the closing kind of benediction that I mentioned before, in chapter 13, verse 24, the author instructs this group of Jewish second-generation believers to greet all of your leaders and all the saints. So putting all these things together, it's very possible that this is some kind of house church group of Jewish believers that in some way had perhaps kind of segregated themselves or removed themselves from the broader church in the city in which they were living. And what the author is doing is he's stressing the corporate responsibility and blessing and fellowship of all of the saints. Uh, One other fascinating dimension that tells us something about the uh, both the author as well as the audience is that this book which quotes from the Old Testament more than any other book this book that is written directly to Jewish believers when the author cites the Old Testament he does not cite the Hebrew Old Testament but he cites the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament which tells us that very likely I'm sure Knowing what we know about this author in his mind, I'm sure he knew both the Hebrew Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, and the Greek. But because of the audience, he cites the Greek. So these are Greek-speaking Jews. These are Hellenistic Jews to whom he is writing. And one other point to remember, the original audience, the original audience of this book didn't have the book in their lap that they could read individually. They had to have it corporately read to them. Now, maybe you've heard the expression or said the expression that we are a New Testament church or we want to be a New Testament church. 
And it's a good sentiment. The idea there is that as a church here in the 21st century, we want to build our church based upon the description and prescription and guidance that God gives in the New Testament. We want to be similar to the New Testament churches. We can have sound systems and uh, you know, running water and all the rest of that. But in terms of the core, the bone and marrow, we want to be a New Testament church. So again, that's a good sentiment. But, beloved, remember, the Bible doesn't begin with Matthew. The Bible begins with Genesis. And understand this, we can't truly understand the New Testament unless we understand the Old Testament. We can't fully appreciate the New Covenant unless we have a measure of appreciation and understanding of the Old Covenant. I remember in one of my first seminary classes I took, the very sage statement was made, well, we are New Testament, we're a New Testament church, we're New Testament Christians, therefore, read the New Testament first, but don't read it twice until you've read the Old Testament once. Good words of wisdom. Beloved, we will keep our Old Testament open as we read and study the book of Hebrews. And also, when you think of the major links, in one sense, major link books of the New Testament, or in other words, first books, the first gospel, Matthew, the first Pauline epistle, Romans, the first general epistle, Hebrews, and then the book of Revelation, these four major link books, first books, are ones that rely more on the Old Testament than many of the other books. So, that is the who. Secondly, briefly, what about the where and when? Where was the audience? Three suggestions have, have uh, been suggested. And again, the book doesn't tell us for sure, but Jerusalem, Rome, and Alexandria. Uh, Jerusalem, I don't think that's a possibility because if the author was writing to a group of Jewish believers in Jerusalem or in the Promised Land, he would have used the Hebrew Old Testament rather than the Septuagint. And that leaves us with Rome and Alexandria as good suggestions, obviously major centers at that time. And uh, Rome would be probably the more likely location because the first extra-biblical citation of Hebrews was in Clement of Rome's writing in A.D. 96. And it, the, uh, bo the uh, book of Hebrews was not referenced in Alexandria until the 3rd century. So very likely, I think it's a good chance that he is writing to a group, again, of second-generation Hellenistic Jewish believers, very possibly in Rome. And by the way, pointing towards that, we do have something from the text. Again, in the closing greetings, in chapter 13, verse 24, the author says, those from Italy greet you. So it certainly makes sense if the author is writing to a group of believers in Rome that he's letting them know that those that come from their homeland send their greeting back to them. Uh, that is the where, but what about the when? Well, uh, the when, so in this wonderful book, there are tremendous continuous themes of assurance of salvation, of the one faith, of the one mediator, of Christ and the superiority and the preeminence of Christ, who is the great high priest and the perfect sacrifice. So there are tremendous sections where he brings out the assurance of salvation of those who are the children of God. 
and also there are great warnings. And what's interesting is the warning that he gives these beloved people are not warnings against circumcision or against having circumcision as an added work. For example, if you remember the book of Galatians, the, Paul, when he wrote to the Galatians, he was warning the Galatians to beware of the Judaizers. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with circumcision. But the problem with the Judaizers is they were saying you had to be circumcised to be saved. So that was the warning that the Galatians got. So there's no mention here. Rather, the warning here is to the Jewish believers is don't go back to the old covenant system of sacrificial offering. He's he's basically saying, look, there's a great temptation. For example, in chapter 7, in verse 25, again, just bringing out and highlighting Christ, who's able to save forever, verse 25, because he always lives to make intercession. He's the high priest who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, verse 26. But now watch this, verse 27 and 28. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And he's speaking in present tense. Also in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, the author speaks of the sacrificial system in present tense. And so the idea here is that the temple is still standing. Therefore, and it's also in chapter 9, he does the same kind of dynamic where he speaks in present tense of the sacrificial system in the temple. So we know that the date of Hebrews was sometime before A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Also, in chapter 12, verse 4, the author of Hebrews tells his beloved audience that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And this would place it most likely before the terrible persecution from Nero in AD 65. So these would be two kind of brackets or maybe stop gaps on the later part. But when we look at this and realize that again, it's second generation believers. Also, when we see a common theme that the author brings out, which is that his audience should be more mature in the faith. That would tell us we don't want to go too early in our dating. So all this to say that very likely it would be somewhere around the early 60s or mid-60s of A.D. So that's the who, that's the where, and the when. Now, most importantly, what about the how and the why? And what I mean by, by how is what was his style? What, what genre is this book? Uh, I mentioned before that my Bible has the superscription, the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, but is this an epistle? You know, again, the author begins without any introduction. So back to my opening illustration, the author just jumps right in. He didn't have an introduction because of the weight of his material. So he basically dives immediately right into the deep end of the theological pool. And we've seen this before. In fact, this is how the entire Bible opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So at the very point with the introduction to the entire truth claim around creation, in the introduction to the entire canon of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible presupposes the existence of God and jumps right in. John also does this in his gospel, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
So we would say from this that this doesn't opening and initially seem like an epistle. It actually seems more like a sermon. In fact, it's not, if you will remember, uh, Paul and other writers that will talk about the reason why they write. First uh, John 5, 21, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Or Paul will talk about, I'm writing to you for this reason. Jude talks about writing. The author of Hebrews doesn't even mention writing until again, the closing part, Chapter 13, verse 22, when he says, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And beloved, from beginning to end, from first to last, this is a word of exhortation from God through the heart and from the heart of this author to the audience. So again, I would say this is more a sermon rather than an epistle, although it does close with the ending of a letter. And I would even say that the oratorical character and brilliance of the author almost demands that it was originally either a spoken sermon that someone recorded and wrote down, or it was written out by the author intended for it to be not read as a letter, but to be given as a sermon. And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said this quote, and I love this because it strikes into where we just were in Ephesians. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the epistle to the Hebrews is nothing in a sense but an extended commentary on the phrase, take unto you the helmet of salvation. That's what good Dr. Jones said. Another commentator said that it's a Christological expansion of the Philippian hymn in, after the kenosis passage in Philippians chapter 2. Another commentator said it's an explanation or an explication of the book of Leviticus. That's why I read from Leviticus uh, even earlier. And beloved, by the time we're finished, we'll have a much better understanding of Leviticus. One bite at a time. So this is a sermonic epistle. It's inspired preaching, prepared for oral delivery to a specific community. And beloved, this author, with his meticulous preparation, planned this sermonic letter with care and preparation. There's a predominance of first-person plural pronouns. We, us, our. He is right there with his audience. He alternates brilliantly between exposition and exhortation, and his exhortations reveal his warm heart and deep concern towards his audience. Another element, and this is, this is brilliant, this is staggering in the context of how he wrote, what was the style. You will remember that Jesus, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, three times, what did, how did Jesus respond to the devil? It is written. It is written. Yeah, with the Greek grammar perfect, in other, it was written and completed in the past with continuing amplification, relevation, significance. Uh, not, not revelation, but relevance, I should say. Uh, the idea, and a great phrase that really captures that dynamic is, it stands written. It was written in the past, and it stands firm today against any satanic onslaught. That's how Christ, that's the grammar of the gospel that Christ used. The apostle Paul, that's how he normally cites scripture as well. He says, just as it is written, just as it stands written. Now what's amazing is the author of Hebrews, he doesn't use that perfect tense, that past tense. He uses the present participle saying. 
Uh, we read Leviticus again, 17, 1 through 11 at the very beginning. As Moses gives the word of God to the nation of Israel, this is the word of God saying, present participle. You, you'll see that twice in Leviticus. The author of Hebrews makes his citation of the Old Testament dynamic. It speaks right here, right now, in this moment at time. The author believes that God continues to speak today in the biblical passages he cites. That's why you will see as we go through Hebrews, the word of God saying, is saying right here, right now. And now, some of the other New Testament authors also use the present participle saying when they're citing scripture. But in every case elsewhere, they either attribute it to the name of the prophetic speaker or scripture is saying. But the author of Hebrews doesn't do that. He just says, this is the word of God saying. Again, there is a tremendous dynamic on the spot at the moment manner that he is presenting the word of God to us as well. There's roughly 35 quotations with God as speaker. Three, excuse me, four are assigned to the Son, five others to the Spirit. And beloved, understand this. The only way that we know God is because he speaks to us. He speaks to us today saying in the word of God to you and to me. If God didn't speak, we could not know him. And then finally, that's how he wrote. But why did he wrote? What is his overarching goal and what is on his heart and mind? And he's writing to a group of believers who are standing in the crossroads of life. They are caught midstream between persecution and change of life and a pull back to their old way of life, to the old wineskins. And what the author does for them and what he does for you and me is he sets Jesus before us in his grace and his greatness and his glory and his majesty. We see Christ in his preexistence. We see him in his humanity and incarnation. We see him in his deity. We see him in his exaltation and ascension. Uh, in, in chapter 1, which of course we will begin next week, the deity of Jesus is brought out. He is the <clears throat> radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is the perfect, the Son is the perfect impression of the Godhead in the incarnation. He is God by virtue of his name, by virtue of being the object of worship, by his very nature, by his rule and his authority, his role as creator, his existence and his position and his pre-existence and angels in verse 7 of chapter 1 bow down and worship him he is the incarnate deity and the humanity of Jesus is brought out powerfully and wonderfully he was tempted just as you and I are tempted yet without sin chapter 4 verse 15 Jesus the man exercised faith in God in chapter 2, verse 13, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of the wilderness, we know from the Gospels. In Hebrews, he was a man of prayer. Chapter 5, verse 7, same verse, Jesus the man showed godly fear. But he is now exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. And as Paul told the Ephesians, so also the author of Hebrews reminds us that we also are right now exalted and seated with him Figuratively speaking, of course, as a foretaste of our future abode and home going forward. Chapter 3, verse 1, 
the author says, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 12, verse 3, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Beloved, Christ is the one. He is the better mediator. He is the better hope. He is the better sacrifice. He is the better high priest. He has the better covenant. And what the author tells us and what we'll learn is we put Jesus, where to put Jesus, in relation to God, in relation to the world, and in relation to yourself. And he is standing at the center of the Trinity. And he is perfectly, infinitely, vastly superior to anything else and everyone else. Beloved, the gospel is what it is because the Son became who he is, is what he is, and always will be what he is. The greatness of the gospel is the greatness of the Son. Not in symbol or shadow, as was the case of the Old Covenant and those high priests, even as we read in chapter 7, but in substance, in fulfillment. And the, the, just the comparative adjective, better, 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 goes all the way through. There is a massive contrast between the imperfect and the perfect, between the finite and the infinite, between the earthly and heavenly, between the created and the, the uncreated, between all that is passing away and that which abides, between the old and the new. Beloved, the author of Hebrews, the human author of Hebrews' pastoral strategies were designed to stir the members of this second-generation Hellenistic Jewish community to recognize they can't turn the hands of the clock back. They must, as you and I must, hold firmly to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to grow up in the faith, to don't remain infantile, long for the pure milk of the word of God like Peter says, but grow up and don't just be satisfied with just the milk, but dig deep and bite onto the meat of the word. Beloved, the book of Hebrews deals with one variation of life's most important question. How can a sinful man or sinful woman approach a holy God. And once you have the son as your high priest and your sacrifice, why would you go back to the old system? Beloved, our study of Hebrews will set before you the majesty and the might and the mercy of King Jesus, of Lord Jesus. Beloved, even as Vadi Bakum said, as I shared before, he shared that he needed the gospel when he was a pagan, when he was unsaved. And then he said, I need the gospel. When I was sitting there practically vibrating with goosebumps on goosebumps, listen to his off-the-cuff gospel presentation in its entirety of not just how one gets saved through justified, but what it means to be sanctified. I, 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 was, <laughs> I, I was saying, yes, I need the gospel. We need the gospel. And the beloved, the book of Hebrews delivers the gospel. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for so great a salvation. God, when we consider our rebellion, our sinfulness, God, I, I know my sin. No one knows my sinful thinking and my past sin and my even residual sin like I know it. But Lord God, we praise you and thank you that that is forgiven in Christ. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, that in Christ we can mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We can grow in the grace and knowledge of you as our Lord and Savior. Dear God, bless this beloved Santan Bible Church as we embark on this journey through this mighty book. And it is for your glory and for your honor. And Lord God, for anyone that is here that is listening or anyone who is watching or listening even later that is not trusting in you alone by faith alone for their salvation, open their eyes, open their heart to receive the imperishable seed of the word of God of truth. Put life where there was no life before. Let them turn from their sin. Let them trust in you alone by faith alone. And we praise you and thank you that as our high priest, as our chief shepherd, as the one who has sheep who know his voice, that anyone that comes to you and asks for forgiveness, you will receive them to yourself. Make them a new creature in Christ Jesus. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, and we go from here with the gospel at hand. Amen.